Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll ask whether the best way to interpret the Bible is always literally. Many well-meaning conservative evangelicals will argue that literal interpretation is always best. And our Reformed theological tradition places a high value on the plain reading of the text. But when it comes to poetry and prophecy, to interpret the Bible accurately, we sometimes have to take a different approach. We'll talk about the value of interpreting spiritual things spiritually, and also the danger that comes from straying too far from the plain meaning of the text. There's a story I always tell when the topic of literal interpretation comes up, especially in the context of prophecy. When I was in Sunday school years ago, a Sunday school teacher of mine who was working through the book of Revelation got to this particular line, and I'll never forget the words he said as he was explaining to us what it all really meant. He said, the locusts are literally helicopters. And I wasn't the kind of student who talks back in class or corrects the teacher. But in my mind, I thought, no, no, no. I think what you mean are that the locusts are metaphorically helicopters because they are literally locusts. And if you were interpreting this passage literally, then the locust would be locust, not helicopters. And it points to one of those ironies, you know, that people who think they are interpreting everything literally often find themselves having to interpret metaphorically. They just don't acknowledge that that's what they're doing. So because we've been spending a lot of time this year in Old Testament prophecy, and that does raise questions about whether we should interpret things literally or metaphorically or some other kind of way, I thought it might be helpful as we approach the end of the book of Zechariah to revisit this question of right interpretation and and how the Bible is meant to be interpreted. Cameron, I'm sure you've run into similar, uh, let's say, misunderstandings about interpretation because on the one hand, uh, as a poet, you have certain ideas about how texts are to be interpreted, but as a theological student, Oftentimes, there are very different kinds of assumptions that we bring to the text. So uh, what would you say are some of the challenges that you see when it comes to uh, biblical interpretation, specifically like interpreting the text of the Bible and understanding what it means? Yeah, I think the first thing goes back to what you just said, and it's that we need to see that the Bible needs to be interpreted. Hmm. If if not everywhere, in most places, there needs to be some interpretation. And and that's just due to the nature of it being a text. You know, when you read anything, whether it's, and unless it's math or some kind of science, it, it requires some kind of interpretation, taking the context into account. And we're so accustomed to doing that that oftentimes we do it without being conscious. Right. So that was going to be my second point yeah. is that I think a lot of people, myself included, think that we're approaching the text kind of objectively that we're just taking the, the quote unquote plain reading 
of the text when it's really a kind of interpretation already, but it's one that we're so used to where we don't even see it as an interpretation anymore. We just see it as the text. Right. So you talked about the plain reading and of course in the reform tradition, there's a, a huge emphasis on taking the plain meaning or the plain sense of the text as let's say the default interpretation, like in the absence of evidence to the contrary, we're going to read things at face value, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, I think that's a good rule of thumb, as long as we also keep in mind that not everything intends to be read at face value. Right. Uh, So a good example, I suppose, would be poetry, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, poems are written intentionally not just to be read at face value, but to have this this layer of deeper meaning to them. And I think that most of the time we intuitively understand that. We code switch all the time in our day-to-day lives. You know, we we know the difference between a newspaper and a piece of art and a poem and a song and and all the other kinds of text that we read in the day. And I think in the Bible, usually we get that too. We know that when the Psalms talk about God being a rock, it's not being literal. Right. And we automatically kind of make that connection in our minds. I think the trouble comes when we maybe misunderstand the type of text that we're reading and then the interpretation. Well, that's just where things kind right. of get more difficult. Right. Sure. So in some cases, maybe you're dealing with an ancient text and, and you don't know the context that it's referring to. Uh, it could be that, um, you know, we're, we're just dealing with a passage whose references are so obscure that it can be mystifying. You know, it's easy if you're, you're hearing, oh, God is a rock to say, oh, this is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And we use similar metaphors all the time. But if you are getting, you know, let's say a deeper cut, maybe something not as familiar to us, uh, you might not pick up on that. Or if you do, you might not know what to do with it mm-hmm. necessarily. And I think that's Often the case. And so it, can I get yeah. one example? Yes. Yeah. When I was in when in college as an undergrad, I was taking a class in, uh, let's see, it was Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And one thing that our professor insisted on was that wisdom literature is different from law. And, and I think that we tend to approach them as the exact same, that you read the book of Proverbs and every single one of these verses is just a command straight from God and you need to do all of them all the time. Right. And, and the same with Ecclesiastes and all the, the wisdom literature when really what's going on is something a little more complex where it's, it's wisdom literature. It's, it's guidance about life rather than a, a, a law. And it took me a long time to get the difference. Right. No, I had a similar experience as a, as a younger person reading the book of Proverbs and running into sometimes paradoxical yeah. statements where it asserts one thing and then turns around and asserts the opposite. Yeah. And you're thinking, wait a second, which yeah. one of them is right? Mm-hmm. I, what's going on here? Because you're used to thinking in very literal categories, kind of in a linear way mm-hmm. and not really uh, accustomed to those kinds of paradoxes. It just feels like a contradictory nonsensical statement. And why is God doing this to us? And it hurts my head and that sort of thing. Yeah. And of course the, the, the difficulties are only multiplied when we get to prophecy because there's a huge amount of interest in prophecy, but because it is such a difficult genre, it's, it's such a 
heightened language, interpreting it can be challenging because there are, uh, you know, tools for literal interpretation, tools for poetic interpretation, but but which ones do we use and at which point? And, and the answer, of course, is we're going to end up using all of them at one point or another. And it's not always going to be clear in prophecy whether we should go one way or the other. And so it presents interesting <laughs> challenges, as we've seen in Zechariah. But I wanted to, to point out, so my most recent sermon was on the end of Zechariah 13, and I did something in the sermon that you called out earlier, which is to use an interpretation as if what you were doing was just presenting the plain meaning of the text. So I interpret some of the images in Zechariah 13 in a spiritual as opposed to a literal way. And based on that assumption, I talked about these verses and, you know, gave their meaning as I interpreted them following that understanding. And so I'd like to go back and just give a flavor of this. So mm -hmm. this is in Zechariah 13, uh, verses 7 and 8. So it begins, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So we'll pause right there. Um, this passage is one that Jesus himself cites in Matthew's gospel and also, I believe, in Mark's or Luke's. And so in two different places, probably John, since I didn't mention it, but... <laughs> but uh, in two different places in the Gospels, Jesus quotes this prophecy and he applies it to himself. The striking of the shepherd is his crucifixion. The scattering of the sheep, in the first instance, is the denial of Jesus by his disciples. So we think famously of Peter's denial, which Jesus refers to in mm -hmm. that same passage. So Jesus is telling us what this means. He's telling us where in the timeline this prophecy is fulfilled. Now, if you go back to the prophecy, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus says, that's me and the scattered sheep, that's you. And then we're told in the whole land, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. Now, as I treated that, I, I interpreted it spiritually, that the two thirds who are cut off and perish are the majority of the covenant people of Israel, who in John's words, his own people, he comes to his people and his own people do not receive him. Right? So these are the covenant people, inheritors of the promise, who do not accept the Messiah. The one-third who are left alive, I interpreted and presented as those who receive the Messiah and therefore receive life. And they are the ones who are then put into the fire that refines them. So that fits very well with New Testament language about the sanctifying, refining fire mm -hmm. and, and trials of the Christian life. So the question, though, is this. If we were going to take a passage like this and read it literally instead of spiritually, would we run into some trouble? And I think we would. Because if we were going to do this literally, we would need to say there's a certain number of people in the land 
two-thirds of those people, which is a, a number that we could calculate. We just need the population figures for the whole land, and then we can divide you know, two-thirds out, and that's how many people will be cut off and perished to a man. We can calculate that. And then one-third need to be left alive. But the problem with that is when Jesus was crucified, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And when he was crucified, two-thirds of the people in Israel were not killed. They didn't perish. They didn't die, leaving only one-third behind to live. So in a literal sense, that didn't happen. In which case, if all prophecy should be interpreted literally, the disciples, when they said to Jesus, no, no, you're wrong. This prophecy that you're quoting is not going to be fulfilled. They had a point right. because it wasn't literally going to happen this way, but spiritually it did. And so my hope is by kind of going behind the curtain on that, that you can see that there, there are moments that you may agree or disagree with the nuances of, of the interpretation, but there are moments where the text, especially the way that Jesus cites it, really calls for a different kind of interpretation than like a woodenly literal one would demand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this is a good example of how we say the New Testament sheds light on the old and the old sheds light on the new. And this is one example where especially the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, you know, clarifies what's going on here. But I was also thinking as you're reading through this again, there are other indications within Zechariah itself that this is not meant to be taken literally if you just think about the usage of shepherds and sheep and flock. Yes. We're not talking about literal sheep, but when we hear that we're so used to it like we've been talking about that we know oh we're you know this is a metaphor for God and his people. But if we were being completely literal we would have to say we're talking about sheep here. Right. You could totally look at this and say, well Jesus actually you've refuted your own claims to be the Messiah <laughs> because you are a carpenter yeah. not a shepherd. Yeah. Exactly. I th- I think it's it's we're so accustomed to making those interpretive leaps that we're only conscious of them when maybe someone makes a different one than we do. Mm-hmm. So there's that friction that that calls attention to it. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I don't think that's a bad thing. And certainly when it comes to interpreting prophecy, I think it's good for us to remember that our interpretations are interpretations and are not the final word. And that I certainly fully expect when I see Christ face to face for him to be able to say, you know, that series you did on Zechariah, nice try, (laughs) but uh, you missed a lot. And I'm not going to feel disappointed in that moment. I'm going to be like, well, absolutely. Of course, of Mm -hmm. course. Um, Our interpretations are tentative and and we hold them lightly and, and they're subject to revision as we learn more and as we see more and that sort of thing. All the more reason, I think, to focus on the things we can hold on to. So where we have Jesus himself telling us, this is what this prophecy is about, then you know that you're not relying at that point on the pastor's speculation. Like you're getting from Jesus himself that this refers to me and I am the one who was promised. Mm -hmm. I think too that we could spend a minute in talking about the dangers of of getting too far away from a literal interpretation, because I know that's not what you're saying either. Um, yes. What do you think are are some of the dangers of getting 
too far into like speculation or spiritual poetic interpretations. Right. So again, kind of like, like recentering in our, our reform tradition and that, that preference for the plain meaning, a big part of the reason for that was a tradition uh, through the ancient church and into the middle ages of having like a fourfold interpretation of scripture where like everything was susceptible to at least four levels of interpretation. And, and the one that got a lot of emphasis was the allegorical interpretation. And so you find in, um, you know, medieval theology, a tendency towards allegorizing a lot of things in scripture. And, the, the, what does that mean? So essentially taking it to be a, a story that, that isn't meant to be taken at face value, but actually alludes to something else. And usually you'd need to be a really smart person to figure right. it out. Yeah. You know, you think about uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as a famous allegory. Like everybody's name stands for an idea that they represent. So it's that kind of thing. So you, you could have an interpreter going to the Old Testament and finding these Old Testament narratives, but then reading them almost like they were Pilgrim's Progress mm -hmm. and that the characters just stand for ideas and the ideas are being tested in the story. The convenient thing about that is, is it's a great way to paper over any difficulties with the face value reading. So if the Bible is telling us something that's out of accord with our modern values, if it's saying things that are hard for us to understand or accept, we can allegorize them away. And in a similar way to the way that, that many people, as we've talked before in, in uh, like mainstream uh, liberal theology, allegorize the resurrection mm -hmm. so that they claim to believe in Christ's resurrection, but they believe in it as a kind of idea or a story that represents something else. So you can understand why people like the reformers who had a high view of scripture and its authority would be very skeptical of this allegorizing tendency because you can kind of make the text say whatever you want or need it to say. And once that becomes possible, the authority of scripture evaporates. Right. So there's a good reason to default to the plain reading with the proviso that we always want to interpret scripture the way it means to be interpreted. Right? So when scripture wants to be understood at face value, that's what we should do. But when it is spiritual, when it is allegorical, we're misinterpreting it if we interpret it otherwise. And so that requires a certain degree of sophistication. But the, the point is that sophistication goes hand in hand with faithful interpretation. So, you know, a lot of us have, have been told, you know, the only conservative, i.e. good way to interpret the Bible is literal interpretation. And that's sometimes true. But not always, you really have to look at the kind of text that you're interpreting, interpret it appropriately. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks as always to Cameron, and thanks to you for listening. And I mean that literally. We hope you'll join us next time. 
In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.